Let's say a blessing for studying Torah. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotav B'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, source of life, who has given us the commandment to engage with the words of Torah. The Torah portion this week is Mishpatim, which means laws. And it's chapter 21, 22, 23, um, and 24, actually, of uh, Exodus, coming right on the heels of the Ten Commandments last week. Last week's portion, uh, we hear the Ten Commandments, and now we hear very detailed, three chapters of detailed civil law. Um, uh, in other words, the fine print, you know, uh, when we say you shall not steal in the Ten Commandments, there's a lot, many examples of case law of different kinds of theft and what the punishment should be, what the compensatory damages should be. How it's, so in one sense, it's rather dry, but in another sense, it, I find it totally fascinating. Chapter 21, 22, and 23 focus on the laws. And then chapter 24 is this amazing chapter where this covenant is formally entered into uh, by the children of Israel. And some years I'm drawn to that chapter, which is a, like a mystical uh, vision of uh, beholding God and eating and drinking. But this year, my attention was totally drawn to the rules. And so that's what I want to do with you today. And I wish we had, you know, a couple of hours just to make our way through, but we don't. So we'll do as much as we do. And um, I want us all to get a feel for this, uh, th this, um, uh, this code of, of legal code that now comes right on the heels of the Ten Commandments. And I welcome your input. No, the 72 is in Parshat Kitetzei in Deuteronomy. Uh, Ellen, um, which is the other Parsha, which has dozens of precepts. This one doesn't get called 72 for whatever reason. I, I, that, that number is attached to that other Parsha. Um, so I'm going to share my screen. And what I want to do is uh, just start reading the portion with you and sharing some comments. And by the way, again, in the name of teachers, uh, today I looked in, this, this Chumash is called Eitz Chaim, it was put out by the conservative movement, and it has a commentary by Rabbi Harold Kushner. Is Harold Kushner still alive, Rabbi Ellen? Yes, he lives in the same place my mother does. That's why I asked. Um, Harold Kushner is, the, is best known for his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, which he wrote after... Uh, their son uh, died of this uh, unusual disease, whose name I'm forgetting, where the body ages so rapidly that the person dies when they're in their teens, usually. And uh, after that horrible experience, he wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. 
Uh, Rabbi Ellen thinks it's called progeria. I think you're right. Um, but he also, but so he was asked to write the commentary to this conservative um, uh, Humash, and I personally get great value from his comments. So that's where I looked today. That's primarily where where my resource is today, and I wanted to know that. So I'll be quoting him um, it, as we go. So let me share the screen. And that is here. Okay. Everyone got a good view? Yeah, good. Okay. Um, oh, so you should mute yourselves if you're not um, sharing at any time. These are the rules that you shall set before them. And here they come. Uh, and I just have to share this comment uh, about, about that beginning. Um, where did I put it? Here it is. It comes from the Midrash of Yalkut Shimoni, again quoted by uh, Rabbi Kushner. And he, the rabbis love to do this. The previous parsha, Yitro, ended with rules for the altar that the, where the sacrifices would be made. Do not, it says, make for me an altar of stones. Do not build it of hewn stones. For by wielding your tool upon it, you have profaned them. Do not send my altar by steps that your nakedness may not be exposed upon it. That's the very contiguous verse. And then it says, these are the rules that you shall set before them. And so an old Midrash says, in the time to come, uh, commenting about this verse, because the Torah is written while the, uh, while the altar still exists. But in times to come, when there will no longer be an altar because the temple has been destroyed, building a just society will be the equivalent of bringing sacrifices. I thought that was very beautiful. And I especially like that it comes from an early source, equating building a just society with offering sacrifice. And then here's the first rules it brings up. When you acquire a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. In the seventh year, he shall go free without payment, without having to pay any, any fines or any accumulated debts. He has paid off his debt. And a Hebrew slave, an Eved Ivri, is like an indentured servant. This, is a, the, the, this would take place when a... Um, uh, an, an Israelite could not, uh, was in deep debt and had no, no way to pay his debt off. He could indenture his labor for six years in order to pay off his de debt. This is the origin of indentured servitude. If you recall, Jacob, when he goes and lives with his brother Laban, labors for seven years in order to acquire Rachel Le and then requires Le a Leah through uh, Laban's trickery, and then works another seven years to acquire Rachel. That is how he pays off 
his debt for, uh, and so that's where indentured servitude comes from. If he came single, he shall leave single. If he had a wife, his wife shall leave with him. If his master gave him a wife and she has borne him children, the wife and her children shall belong to the master and he shall leave alone. Okay, remember, all these laws function within a patriarchal system where women do not have the same rights as men um, and where women are, where women and slaves are a form of property, but also human beings. And you'll find that the laws in the Torah always acknowledge the humanity of women, of slaves, of indentured servants, even as they don't have the same power or social standing as the men do. So keep that in mind uh, as we go along. So the slave has uh, been given a wife and has children, and he can't take them with him. But if the slave declares, I love my master and my wife and children, I do not wish to go free. His master shall take him before God. He shall be brought to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall then remain his slave for life. Okay, let me uh, stop sharing for a moment so we can see each other. So, um, first, again, the institution of slavery is not abolished in the Torah. What the Torah rails against and legislates against is the institution of cruelty and dehumanization. Any more than Aristotle uh, or the Greeks couldn't, never envisioned a world where there weren't slaves. It was just part of the economy of the ancient world. And often it was in someone's interest who had no means of support to go ahead and essentially bond themselves, be a bondsman to someone else's household where they would be guaranteed a roof and three meals, right? So the institution of slavery persists right up till modern, right until the modern period. Uh, what what the what the Torah is doing is insisting that slaves, women, strangers, the powerless are human, and there's a baseline of humane treatment that every human being deserves. This is what's revolutionary about the Torah. Eventually, Judaism also starts to outlaw slavery. Um, but these are developments over a long period of time. It's logical that the very institution of slavery would become anathema, given the primary principle that all humans are made in the, the divine image. But uh, all of that is, so much of that is dependent on social and economic um, uh, practices of any time. Right, it seems like a bad deal, says Susan, that the man has to stay as a slave to keep his wife and children. Uh, 
yes, if we had that rule today, it would seem a very bad deal. But in its time, where slavery, where women and children are the property of the patriarch, whoever the head of the household is, um, uh, this was his option. Uh, what that ensured him he, was that he could be with his family. It's true. Uh, what you'll see in these rules is what's legislated against is cruel and inhumane treatment. But the institution of slavery is not questioned in the Torah itself. Um, and uh, what I want to propose to you is that for its time, the Torah was radically progressive. And that those radically progressive principles that animate Judaism, number one, all humans are created in the image of God. Um, and uh, uh, therefore, it's like saying in our constitution, all men are created equal, um, but men was understood to be white property owners, male. And the, but however, the principle of who's, who gets included in the category of men, that is humans as they expressed at the time, expands over time. The same thing happens to Jewish law, but the, the core principle is already established. Gail says, do you know if he could later buy his wife and children if he acquired the means? Um, I don't know, Gail, but what I do know is that in the commentaries about this, the rabbis say that, this, that they are not there for life, but they are there until either the master dies or a jubilee year comes about. So what happens when you study the Torah laws, and then you study the rabbinic commentary about the Torah laws, the rabbinic commentary is almost always loosening it up and saying, in fact, what they mean for life is, because elsewhere in the Torah we read that in the jubilee year, in the 50th year, all slaves are released. And we also read elsewhere in the Torah that when a master dies, the slave is freed. So um, um, the rabbis take these various things from the Torah. And I don't, so in answer to your question, Gail, I don't know if they could buy their way to freedom, but there was a legal um, definition of when their term of service would end. Um, okay, so let me share the screen again. See, this is why I want a few hours for this stuff. We're just getting started. Um, Rashi says, those who decide to stay are branded in the ear. Their ear is pierced. Why? Because it was the same ear that heard God declare at Sinai, I have brought you out of the house of bondage. So when you hear the commentaries, you realize that even this choice to remain um, is not privileged by the tradition. Going, leaving slavery is leaving slavery. Oh, Ellen, thank you. I'll recognize you in a second. Um, and then another commentary says, and why a doorpost? Because a door was opened for him to go free and he refused to go. 
So later Jewish tradition does not see this as a particularly laudable choice. Again, wanting to critique uh, the Torah, which is the Jewish way. And Gail said, what about non-Hebrew slaves? Different rules? Yes, in the Torah, there are different rules for non-Hebrew slaves um, because the rules about about, um, how you treat your kin, your fellow Israelites, are different than how you treat non-Israelites. But even the rules about treating non-Israelite slaves still come under the um, category of you must not treat them befarech. Farach is the Hebrew word for cruelty used to refer to how Pharaoh treated the slaves. So even though there are um, uh, levels of autonomy clearly in the Torah, there is a baseline of humanity that is affirmed in all cases. Okay, I hope that that was well expressed. Ellen? Um, uh, in a time, there's, uh, it says under that he, if he comes single as trans, unmarried, but the Midrash understands it as vigorous. If the slave was strong and able-bodied when he entered your service, you were not to work him so hard that he was no longer vigorous when he completed his obligation to you. So that's just an example of what you were talking about. And I think that's a great example. Thank you so much. Um, uh, <laughs> Barbara said, a Torah study class that goes for a few hours. Just say when I, and, and I'll mean, thank you, Barbara. That'll, you know, that'll be when we're meeting in person again and online so that we can get up and stretch and go, you know, it's like, we'll do it today. Oh, you're welcome, Naomi. I'm glad you could come for a little while. Okay. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Um, so, and again, here are distinctions. There are hierarchies of autonomy in, in, in the Torah. And I'll repeat, but fundamental humanity is ascribed to all of them. And that is the revolutionary and radical idea of the Torah. Uh, Lives are not dispensable. And we see that throughout Mishpatim. So now we'll go in that a a daughter who becomes a woman, a female who becomes a slave has even less autonomy than a male who becomes a slave. Uh, However, Again, I'm not, I'm not endorsing these social structures, but I want to. What does it mean to have tiers of humanity? It has tiers of status, um, which means that um, the, slave, the slave's autonomy is limited, but their humanity is not limited, Marsha. Uh, because if you, you'll see later in this Parsha, which we won't get to, oh well, uh, you'll see later in this Parsha that if you kill a slave, you can't just pay monetary damages because that slave was a human being. If you treat a slave with cruelty, you are liable. If you injure a slave, there's a whole part coming up where if you knock out a slave's tooth, you are liable for the value of that tooth. If you uh, injure or maim them in any way, you must pay damages to 
because they are human beings. So it's not tears of humanity, it's tears of autonomy, tears of personal you know, status, but not fundamental, uh, not the fundamental sense that these are human beings. Uh, Ruth, liable to what? You're liable for compensation. I'm sorry if I didn't complete a sentence. Feel free to unmute yourself and say it out loud if you want. Thanks. So who is the liability paid to if a slave... Oh, right. So it will go to the, to the slave's master. Um, uh, but it, you're not... Uh, but there, you, it's, you're not paying for property. You're, you're, you're paying because you've disfigured a life. Uh, human life. Um, Deborah said, is it understand that the Ten Commandments are about absolute morality, but these other instructions are culturally influenced? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that, Deborah. I would say that I would say that the Ten Commandments create the baseline. And now we have to figure out what do not steal means. What uh, honor your mother and father means. You know, it's sort of like, they're like the headlines. Um, but I would not say they're absolute in that sense. I would say they, they are waiting to be interpreted. Um, and that's what a lot of, lot of, that's what this portion does a lot of. Um, that's why I call this the fine print. Um, um, so if a woman man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go free as male slaves do, but if she, because she's more, even more property in that society. But if she proves to be displeasing to her master who designated her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He shall not have the right to sell her to outsiders since he broke faith with her, right? He can't take her as property and sell her down the river, which is literally where that, down the Mississippi, where that phrase comes from. Um, uh, he has broken his faith with her. She gets to go back to her family, right? The woman does, the, there are no women who have the right in the Torah to uh, uh, do more than be part of the patriarchal system, but they're still humans. They are not possessions or objects. That's what I want. If he designated her for her son, he shall deal with her as is the practice with free maidens. If he marries another, he must, in other words, free maidens get a dowry. I mean, they, they give a dowry, but they also are given protections. Um, here are the protections. If this person takes another wife, because polygamy is uh, accepted in the Torah, he cannot withhold from the first wife her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. This is really important. This is again, they are not, he, she is not, she is somewhere between his possession and his partner, right? His family. And so the Torah recognizes this. She can't be wantonly cast aside, nor can her needs be ignored because he made an oath to her. He took her in as family. And so even though she has so few rights, the Torah ascribes to her 
all of this humanity, because if he fails her in these three ways, she shall go free without payment. Um, I hope I'm getting across, and I think I am, um, uh, that this is progressive, based again on these revolutionary principles of the Torah, that every single human being is made in the image of God, and that no one, even the king, is above the law, even the patriarch. And the Torah sees women as having sexual needs. Isn't that remarkable? This phrase, food, clothing, and conjugal rights, um, becomes the language of the traditional ketubah. Um, and the ketubah is a document created by the rabbis after the biblical period, which the husband gives to the wife with her guarantee of how she's going to be treated. Since in traditional Jewish law, the woman cannot initiate a divorce, if she can show that her ketubah is not being honored, including her sexual needs, Sylvia, if she can prove that her ketubah is not being honored, she can, she can essentially in, shame her husband by going public to the courts and make him give her a divorce, right? So even though the rabbis could not imagine a system of, um, of uh, no-fault divorce or of equality in any way between male status and female status, they did recognize fully the humanity of the woman based on the previous texts in the Torah and create a legal remedy uh, in that regard. And it all comes from this verse. Susan Falk, if she goes free without money, that's not good. Uh, no, she doesn't have to buy her way to freedom, Susan. That's what it means. She doesn't owe him anything. And she can, what her option would be in those days would be to go back to her family's household. Hope that makes sense. Yes, it is assumed that female slaves are not just for work, but will be concubines. That is correct. Look at the story of Jacob. Jacob has two wives, Leah and Rachel, and two concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. So in the ancient world, that is correct. So again, there's much not to celebrate here, right? We know that. However, the consistent thread through all of this, which we're, I think we're able to handle now, 20 years ago, we couldn't even have this conversation in the Torah class, um, is that this was progressively towards a vision that is what animates Judaism, which is, number one, all humans are created in the divine image. Number two, we were slaves in Egypt under harsh and inhumane uh, uh, treatment. And now that we're free, we cannot repeat that. Not to any slave, not to the lowest, most powerless member of society, which included women who had no uh, legal recourse, very, very little, strangers who were resident aliens, and orphans who were fatherless, who had no protector. That became, Rabbi? Yes. What does it mean in the divine image, made in the what? divine image? That. That is the $64,000 question later. Um, so 
when Genesis chapter one says, God made the human being in the divine image, male and female, God created them. It doesn't say what that means. We have to intuit it. And so does it mean perhaps, and these are all going to be yes and, there's, there's not, it's not either or. Does it mean human beings have been given the ability to both create and destroy just like the creator? Maybe, yeah. The Torah is though fundamentally a moral document and it's making a fundamental moral premise that in, in a world in which it arose, in which if you were a king, life was great. If you were a slave, you were, life, life, life was, your life was worthless. So by stating that every human being is made in a divine image, it means that every human being is somehow of incalculable value, bears the, the remember that God is called the king, bears somehow the imprint of royalty, and based on the Jewish story that Pharaoh exhibits exactly how we're not supposed to treat people by making them expendable, by treating them as chattel, by throwing their baby boys into the river, everything that Judaism stands for is to create a society that does not allow that kind of treatment from one human being to another to happen again. That's why we have all these laws. So the, the idea then is that being in the divine image somehow is a reminder that no matter what your social status is, you are precious. And you cannot be treated as garbage, as something to toss away. I think that's what it means most in the context of the Torah, which is fundamentally a moral um, a code. Does that help answer your question, Leah? Partially. Of course, it'll never be completely answered. Never. Never be completely answered. Thank um, you, though. Thank you. Sure. Uh, Gail says, it's worth reading something of Roman treatment of slaves to really appreciate the difference from Torah, much less rabbinic tradition. Yes, the Roman law stands in contrast to these these adjudicated, legislated rights of even the least powerful in a society. Remember, that's radical. It's radical to create a justice system where you insist that even the lowest of the low socially have fundamental rights. Gail, do you want to add? I mute. You're unmuted. Well done. Um, there's a book I think you recommended a long time ago. It may have been Rabbi Ellen, but it is about the heretics, the, the four the heretics. But it takes it's one of them kind of converts to Rome. First century, you know, it is ringing oh. a bell. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. As a driven leaf. As a driven leaf. And it's not incredibly well written, but I had been an admirer of Rome until I read that book. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is so clear what the difference is in treatment 
of those not in power and particularly those who are enslaved. It's, it's, it's worth reading that book. Mm -hmm. It really is. Because we still, as a culture, we tend to think Rome was wonderful. And its engineering was great, and in many ways it was great. The Pax Romana meant a lot. But when you compared the Torah to, the, to their treatment of other human beings, it is really amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as a driven leaf. Thank you. Thank you. Marsha, what do you mean, but still an abstract concept? Do you want to say more about that? Yeah, just, <clears throat> you know, just the idea of that, you know, that humanity base. Uh, whoops, sorry. Just, um, you know, what, it, what did that really mean in, you know, women's or slaves' lives? It's, yes, we're considered humans, but in everyday life, there was, there was, very little power or autonomy. So it just feels abstract when we say we attribute humanity. You know, well, it, it becomes what animates the law code. Um, uh, that principle, which is an abstract principle, I mean, justice is an abstract principle. Uh, but if you have an idea of justice for all as the abstract principle that undergirds your legal system, then uh, uh, there's a much greater likelihood that the powerless will will be ensured a, a baseline of treatment. I mean, it, it's it's the, think about the chronically poor today. Think about the underclass today. Are they, is their lot any better when they have to plead guilty in a plea bargain because they're afraid that if they plead innocent, they won't get uh, they 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 won't get a fair trial? It's like, think of all the ways that justice is perverted today because people who have the least aren't treated with the same fundamental dignity and respect as people who have the most. I mean, we know it's like money rules. It ruled then, it rules now. The purpose of a legal system, which the, and, and part of the glory of the Jewish one is it doesn't ascribe it to even human hands. It says that this person, this principle comes from the uh, DNA of the universe, right? From, from the voice of the creator. Um, Pharaoh was wrong. Pharaoh was evil. If we are going to leave Egypt, we have to create a society that denies the possibility of a Pharaoh ascending to power who treats human beings according to his whim. So these principles are absolutely fundamental to a society that is not a tyranny. Uh, and um, we are, today, we're, it's always a matter of degree. There's an ideal of justice in every in age, and then there's our very mediocre capacity to rise to it. But that's what having a moral code is all about. Um, I hope that helps a little bit. Like a like a, a vision, an aspiration. An aspiration, but also a foundation, a a floor below which you do not go. Because it's considered it's because of the rank immorality of it. Something that's practiced. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's the goal. It's a it's an aspiration and a foundation for a moral society. That's what that's what the Ten Commandments are. 
And that's what pursues here is what's trying to be established. And we've been trying to do better at that ever since. Um, but I give Judaism credit in, the, in, in this regard for putting out this foundation of how human beings are supposed to be treated. Um, and I don't think it can be underestimated personally. Like an expectation also, I keep thinking of that. An expectation which we consider to be inhering in the cosmos itself. The way I like to express it is that just as the laws of nature are um, expected to be followed in the natural world, are, are what makes, no, just like the laws of nature are what hold the world together, the laws of morality are what, what human beings need to discern in order to mirror the harmony of the natural world. Um, Judaism doesn't see a separation between, between the magnificence of nature and the aspirations of, of, of human justice. So what's cool about it is it's not, um, it's not about, it, it goes way beyond expect, it's to be a human being, to fulfill our, to fulfill our natural purpose is to discern and implement the moral law. If we don't, we're not fulfilling our human destiny. And we see that now more than ever. I mean, because of our selfishness and greed, we may actually destroy creation in a way that is a fulfillment of this understanding of humanity. That if we don't participate in a way that is aware and moral, then we destroy. And God didn't make the world to be destroyed. Um, God made the world and put us in it in order to help perfect the world. And this is all fundamental Jewish principles, uh, which I am happy to embrace. Gail, is your hand up again? Or did Thank you, you Rabbi Jonathan. You're welcome. Gail, did, we, did you put your hand down or put it up again? Or did I forget to put it down? Okay, I guess I forgot to put it down. So let's go towards much later in the Parsha since we'll use up our time so quickly, and know that what continues here is um, in the next chapter are more of these laws. Uh, what to do if someone's ox gores a person and kills them? Well, if the ox has never done this before, then the ox is slaughtered, restitution is made, and it's that. But if, the, he, if this ox is a known like a dog, you know, has been known to gore people, then the owner is severely punished. And so there are, it's really worth reading. You really get a sense of, of an effort to create accountability. There's a lot of accountability. Uh, there's a rule about if somebody tries to enter your house to, as a burglar in the night and you kill them, it's not considered homicide because you didn't know what they're doing in their house, it's self-defense. But if they come in in the light of day and clearly are not bent on killing you, if you kill them, you're liable for murder, right? It's like there's so many very nuanced and interesting uh, uh, laws in here that again, I wish I just wanted to go through it all today. But I'm gonna go ahead to some, to the sort of high point of the code, the law code. So I'm just going to scroll ahead a bit.
you'll allow me. Two, verse 20. So the next bunch of verses bring it to a climax. All on the principle of even the powerless are included in our vision of a just society. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not ill-treat any widow or orphan. If you do mistreat them, I will heed their outcry as soon as they cry out to me, and my anger shall blaze forth, and I will put you to the sword, and your own wives shall become widows and your children orphans. So what we hear here is a reflection of the story of the Exodus from the beginning of this book. Because um, when the children of Israel cry out to God under Pharaoh's brutality, it says, and God heard their cry and took note of them and knew their pain. So we make this unprovable, amazing statement that yod heh vav the creator of heaven and earth, insists that human beings not oppress each other. And so here we hear the echo of that, that God hears the outcry, not just of the Israelite slaves, but of any stranger, widow, or orphan who is being uh, oppressed or abused. And God will be the redeemer. Okay, so what's a redeemer, everybody? We've, some of you will remember this. Goel, Baruch Atarunai, Gaal Yisrael. Blessed are you, God, who redeems Israel. The redeemer is the head of the, head of the clan. The male who is responsible for all the people in his household. He is known as the redeemer. Why? Because if any of them get captured into slavery or in any way, it's his job to get them out. That's what redemption means. It's like you buy their way out, you force their way out. the The redeemer is the protector. And so anyone who is in a household, and this is a reason, say, to choose to become a slave, if you had a good protector and redeemer, you'd want to be in that household. Because, uh, again, this is a society that functions that way. Um, uh, So God redeems us out of slavery because God is our redeemer. And in the social structure of the time, every clan, the head of the household, was supposed to be the redeemer. That's what the word means. Um, So here we go. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, do not act toward them as a creditor. Exact no interest from them. Okay? Loan them the money and give them what they need. For example, verse 25, If you take your neighbor's garment and pledge, pledge meaning collateral for the loan, 
you must return it to him before the sun sets. We're talking about why? It is his only clothing. The poor man doesn't have an extra set of clothes, and his cloak is what he sleeps in. In what else shall he sleep? Therefore, if that poor man cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Once again, we're assigning these characteristics to the creator of the universe that we are, we are supposed to, having been made, Leah, in the divine image, supposed to manifest. That's our job. As God is compassionate, so must we be compassionate because we are made in that image. Uh, so um, then it says, you shall not revile God nor curse a chieftain among your people. However, this is an interesting verse because Elohim means God, but Elohim also means judges. And a judge, and Eloha is a judge in, in Hebrew. So I just want to get to that verse and show you what I mean. Um, just a sec. Um, 22, 20. There we go. Um, Rabbi Akiva, says Harold Kushner, understands the words as prohibiting blasphemy against God. Cursing God. Rabbi Ishmael, however, takes this to refer to the word Elohim as judges. You shall not revile your judges. And the comment is that the rich and powerful are not to curse a judicial system that prevents them from exploiting the poor. Um, you shall not put off the skimming of the first yield of your vats. You shall give me the firstborn among your sons. You shall do the same with your cattle and your flocks. Seven days it shall remain with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. This, these are laws of how, because God is our protector, we come with the gifts of our, the best of our yield and give them back to God. And then it says, you shall be holy people to me. You must not eat flesh torn by beasts in the field. You shall cast it to the dogs. Um, and so let's leave that behind and continue. Well, actually, this has to do with the Jewish rules about proper consumption to differentiate us from wild animals. We need to sanctify the meat we eat. We need to give thanks to God. We need to offer an animal up in a way that's prescribed elsewhere in the, in the Torah. But now we go to chapter 23. You must not carry false rumors. You shall not join hands with the guilty to act as a malicious witness. Um, and again, this one verse the Jewish texts go into incredible detail to describe the different ways you can, you can uh, destroy someone with words. Um, you shall neither side with the mighty to do wrong. You shall not give perverse testimony in a dispute 
so as to pervert it in favor of the mighty. Nor shall you show deference to a poor man in his dispute. I'm just going to go on. When you encounter your enemy's ox or ass wandering, you must take it back to him. When you see the ass of your enemy lying under its burden and would refrain from raising it, you must nevertheless raise it with him. You shall not subvert the rights of your needy in their disputes. Keep far from a false charge. Do not bring death on those who are innocent and in the right, for I will not acquit the wrongdoer. Do not take bribes. For bribes blind the clear-sighted and upset the pleas of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But in the seventh you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Let the needy among your people eat of it, and what they leave let the wild beasts eat, and you shall do the same with your vineyards and your olive grove. And now, this description of Shabbat sums it all up. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor. Why? Okay, why? So that you can go to the spa? Here's why. In order that your ox and your ass may rest and that your bondman and the stranger working under you may be refreshed. So this line then sums up everything we've been intuiting from all the other rules. Once a week, you have to give up being the boss. Why? Because your role is not your essence. The wheel of fortune turned. We were slaves in Egypt. And now we're not. So does that mean you get now to work your slave and to the bone? Does that mean you now get to treat them with cruel and inhuman treatment? Absolutely not. Every, the seventh day, the Sabbath, is an absolutely sublime institution designed to remind the powerful and the, and the powerless alike that we are all fundamentally worthy of being rested and refreshed. You can, the reason that Mishpatim says you celebrate the Sabbath is so that the people who, and the animals who, who labor under you can have a day off. Do not think for a second that this was a commonplace in the ancient world. That's why, as we were saying, this fundamental idea of Judaism is revolutionary in leveling the playing field for all human beings, and in this case, for pack animals as well. Be on guard concerning all that I have told you. Make no mention of the names of other gods they shall not be heard on your lips. And then it goes on to describe the festivals. 
And um, uh, well, so I think we're going to run out of time. So I'll stop sharing here. I seem to not tire of reading these over and over again. The, our capacity for self-delusion about who matters and who doesn't matter is un, unending. It's limitless. It's always been that way. And it always will. Okay, Ellen. Ah, all right. Uh, and Susan Falk reminds us that today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, this day represents the day of the liberation of the Auschwitz concentration camp. And the United Nations declared this to be International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Thanks for reminding us, Susan. That's the perfect reminder. There's also the Holocaust Remembrance Day established by the State of Israel, which happens in um, right after Passover. So there are there are two commemorations during the year. Yes, the Holocaust is our modern day's example of Pharaoh in Egypt, right? Of utter tyranny, of utter disregard for the value of human life. There's an incredible Haggadah that I have on my shelf that was written by survivors in 1946 at their first Seder in Munich as free people, where all the woodcuts are woodcuts of, um, I'm going to get it off my shelf. The um, a survivor's Haggadah. It was found among this among the the uh, um, possessions of an American rabbi who was a chaplain, who organized the seder. Long after it had passed, but the illustrations. What's remarkable about it? Um, I'll just show you one of the woodcuts, for example. Okay. The Hebrew says, Avadim hayinu lefaro b'mitzrayim. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. But the woodcut is the labor camp. That was their experience of being utterly dehumanized. Susan, is your hand up? Yeah. Yeah, I just I was just remembering this um, friend of mine for many years from I met her and I became friends with her in a yoga class in the fall of 1971. 
and we were friends till she died in 2015. But she told me about five years after our friendship began that she had uh, been sent on the kinder transport. She was born in Germany and her father was a newspaper editor and he spoke, he spoke out very early against the Nazis. He was taken away and murdered and her mother sent her and her brother on the kinder transport to England. She was almost nine years old. She didn't even speak English. Thanks, Vicky. Yeah. And she she uh, learned English and went to school in England. And then mm -hmm. she had an aunt who made it to the U.S. and got her over when she was 16. Right. And she went to nursing school. And yep. then she met a guy who was the son of the founder of Archie Comics. She met him in a camp where she was a nurse and he was a counselor. And they married. And I, anyway, that's. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Vicky, who just had to leave, uh, her father came on the kinder transport, got to England when he was nine, ten. Oh, my wow. wife's father. My wife's father was put on the kinder transport by his parents from Vienna in 1939. There were ten thousand kids. Nina Lieberman, who was a former member here, I know lots of people. So let me show you another woodcut, just so you get an example of this. The Hebrew says, okay, so people have to go, so I'll just wrap up after this. Uh, and he, they oppressed us and placed upon us harsh labor from Exodus, from the Haggadah. And that's the labor camps. And the whole book is like this. And I'll just say that when this came out, I was talking about it in shul. In, uh, nine, in the year 2000, so 22 years ago, and a man stood up uh, and said, this I'll never forget, they said, I was at that Seder. He had survived, not in the camps, but in hiding, and now he was living in Woodstock. He's not with us anymore. His name will come back to me soon. That was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had as a rabbi. He told us about the Seder. Anyway, I, what I want to be clear about is that's the Torah represents the antithesis of that. When we talk about what we need to do to not go back to Egypt, it's to create a society of just where justice applies to everyone, even the powerless. And... Um, I'm telling you, Judaism is worth celebrating for that and uh, worth elevating. Uh, and I, I, it's important to me that we don't get lost in the weeds of, but how could they treat women that way? And how could they do this this way? And get to the heart of the matter. And I hope I've, I've sort of navigated that with you today because uh, we, really we can really lose the forest for the trees reading a 2,500 to 3,000 year old document uh, and uh, forgetting what it's really after. Um, so thank you.